This is the Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net and in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. Cyber attacks are truly different kinds of threats, but those threats are real and growing. It takes a different kind of approach to defend against them. New and different kinds of questions need to be asked well before an attack actually occurs. Cybersecurity experts advise that having responses to these new types of questions is essential to effectively preparing for and responding to an attack. I'm Pete Kiefer and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. In this episode, we're talking to several court professionals who have endured a cyber attack in their court. We'll be exploring questions about how to prepare your court to defend against an attack. What kinds of questions do you need to be asking your IT professionals? How do you convince a funding body to spend the needed resources on cybersecurity? Do you have a realistic plan to conduct court business without your case management system or even computers for weeks? possibly even months. How can you effectively train staff to respond to a cyber attack? Does your continuity of operations plan, your COOP, even address the implications of a cyber attack? So let's join our panel to discuss just these sorts of questions. We're joined today by Kevin Bowling, court administrator for the 20th Circuit Court in Ottawa County, Michigan. Kevin is also co-chair of the National Center for State Courts Joint Technology Committee and has helped develop three resource bulletins to assist court managers in handling cyber attacks. Julie Heidi, court administrator for the probate court in Fayette County, Ohio. Casey Kennedy, director of the Office of Information Services at the Office of State Court Administration in Austin, Texas. Jorge Basto, director of IT programs for the Cherokee County Clerk of Courts in Canton, Georgia and Montrella Jackson, Court Administrator for the Akron Municipal Court in Akron, Ohio. Julie, Casey, Jorge, and Montrella's courts have all had to deal with cyber attacks. Thank you all for joining today's podcast. When your court was attacked, how long were you down? How long did it take you to get back to being operational? And how did your court function without computers? Casey? So for us, it depended on which organization you're with. So in my office, we support 22 different IT organizations for 22 different entities, I guess uh, you'd call it. And um, the Office of Court Administration, where I work, we were all already shifted most of our stuff out to Office 365. So other than our website, that was all that was really down for us. The rest of our stuff we could access and get to. So We did have a couple of workstations that were impacted that shifted some encrypted documents up to people's OneDrive and Office 365, but they're very easy tools to go back and reverse all that. Uh, So they were back within a day. For our high court and appellate courts, it took about a month, maybe a little bit longer for them to, to get back online and connected with their case management system. And what I'll say that was very interesting to watch is that Um, After day one or two, we had a a meeting with them, I think it was on Saturday afternoon, just to tell them, here's what the impact is. And, you know, they would ask, how long are we going to be down? And in IT, because we were in the middle of an investigation, we didn't know. I I validly cannot tell you 
And you can imagine the pressure of when judges are saying, when's it going to be back? And I can tell you tomorrow or a week, but I don't know that I'm going to be right. So we have no confidence in any of it. Um, after that meeting, it was very interesting to watch what in that meeting, we would say, these are the tools that you have available to you. You have email, you have our cloud apps, we have these resources. And um, there was a lot of in, in innovation going on uh, through that process to where uh, we had a court say, well, you know, we're circulating appellate opinions through email anyway, and we've got them all, and we'll just have the clerk track it on spreadsheets out in the cloud, or we'll do this and use SharePoint for that, or uh, because e-filing is up, our clerk's offices are going to just take e-filings, put them out on SharePoint, and keep it in the spreadsheet until case management comes back. So it's just a lot of innovative things. And, and with that, I would suggest, you know, we need we do need to make sure that um, – that IT groups can tell you what tools you do have available so that uh, our court administrator friends can come up with and utilize those alternative processes to keep the wheels of justice from falling off. Montrella? You know, I would say, you know, even though some areas were up, back up quicker, we were still experiencing remnants of the attack for, for months. And I would say the first week, of course, you know, our phones weren't working. So our main priority was to get communication out to the public. So once some of the other city offices came back online, then we reached out and we went over to their site. And that allowed us to do some things like, you know, send news releases out through the city's uh, public information officer. And then also even just simple things, but very important continuity of operations types of functions. I went over to um, city payroll and we had to use a, a computer that they had set up there to make sure everyone got paid. Then also, although some of the city offices covered quite quickly, the court again did not recover on the same path. And I think some of that was because we were disconnected from the network longer than some of the other offices. Um, so after the, you know, the months transpired and we um, picked up, we did um, reach out to um, consultants at the National Center. And because what became apparent was that there were gaps, there were, our equipment was outdated, there were things that we needed to replace. So we used the opportunity to do a comprehensive overview of our whole IT system and to say, what would it take for us to get where we should be for a quarter of our, our size? Kevin? I've heard that cyber attacks can go undetected for months. How is that possible? What is a court losing during the time that an attack is going undetected? Pete, I, I think Jorge already answered part of that question when he described the fact that a lot of these attacks are coming from bots. They're automated software that may be looking for vulnerabilities in your system rather than you know the image that we have of the teenager in a hoodie in some basement banging away on a keyboard, just having fun on a Saturday night and seeing who he can bring down or if he can crack the Department of Defense or something along those lines. So if you have targeted attacks, it, it might be a little different. You know, there, there are some folks that are motivated by maybe revenge on a current or former employer and they want to get some dirt on them somehow, or maybe it's identity theft where somebody is trying to figure out if there's information that we can make money off of. As Casey mentioned a little earlier, there are some folks that are just criminals that want to disrupt anything related to government, and they're looking for 
uh, vulnerabilities as well. And so they might just take their time until they find what they think is a good target. And there are some folks that are classified as cyber spies, where they're just out trying to collect proprietary or classified information that's going to be profitable to them. So they're going to stay in and try to stay under the radar screen for as long as they can, gather as much as they can that they think they can sell, and then go on from there. So there, there's lots of different ways that these attacks can happen. And that's why sometimes, you know, we might not know for days or weeks or months that we've actually been attacked until we start to see something out of the ordinary, uh, the way some of the other panelists have already described it. Now, one challenge clerks and court administrators have is that they're responsible for a vast array of court functions. Case management technology is only one of those functions. What kinds of questions does a clerk or court administrator ask to ensure that cybersecurity is adequate and that he or she doesn't end up sounding naive and get that common response, everything's fine, just leave it up to us? Kevin? Well, Peter, I'm, I'm glad you included this question, but I also feel a little convicted by it because I had to ask myself some of these questions after I read David Slayton's article in Judicature that I shared with you and I think might be available to folks on the podcast. But Casey's boss, David um, Slayton, who's a state court administrator in Texas, wrote a brief article after they got hacked. And it, he raised a lot of questions that I thought as a court manager, I should know the answers to, and I had no clue. And it was this handful of questions that started a conversation with the Joint Technology Committee. I started the conversation and others jumped on board with it. And we decided we needed to write an update to our cybersecurity resource bulletin uh, as a result, because I took those questions and went back to our IT providers and said, you've never shared any of this information. I want to know what you know. So we put together in the resource bulletin a number of different questions, things like how do you initiate immediate deployment of cybersecurity experts when you're attacked? You know, who do you call? Are our current password requirements sufficient? Are our backup systems secure? And one thing I learned from Casey is do we have at least one backup that's physically disconnected from the network so it can't be hacked? I had no clue. And I, I don't like to admit that as a court administrator, but without going back and, and finding out that we had a disconnected backup, I, I could start to breathe a little easier. So we've tried to develop a lot of these questions and not just, it may be a great thing. A lot of folks are talking about the cloud. The Joint Tech Committee even wrote a paper on cloud computing and, and what it's all about for courts. But that's great. So we send things off to a cloud. What then? You know, is, is this cloud in the sky? Is it a server farm in New Jersey? Is it, you know, what is it? Where is it? But more importantly, when we get shut down, how do we get our data out? You know, how do we find our calendars, like Julie mentioned, to know who's supposed to be coming in for court today? All of those things are, are important questions to ask. And it's, um, it's unfortunate that I think many of us as, you know, local trial court administrators, 
We don't ask those questions because we're so busy just trying to deal with the demand of business every day and new filers that are coming in or complaints or personnel issues or the latest budget fiasco that's going on. You know, we, we assume that our IT professionals have got our back and yet we don't know a lot of these answers and the judges want us to answer these questions when the system goes down. So I know I learned a big lesson from this and I would encourage other court managers to you know, look at this bulletin and, and think about these questions that they ought to be asking their IT providers. And, and Peter, to kind of build on that, one of the things that I wanted to add from an IT perspective, I think it's important for court managers to know, especially if you're, you're working in a local county level with perhaps a county IT department that is doing things like supporting the sheriff's officers or the board of supervisors or commissioner's court, for the court managers to know where in the line of things the county has to do, do the courts fall? Uh, because I know that a lot of times some judges may think that the courts are going to be number one on the list and want to know why are we not back online. But the reality is, is from a county perspective, you may not get to the restoration effort until number four, five, six, ten, however down on the list the courts are. So just to have that knowledge and that candid conversation with your IT staff to say, because they'll tell you, they'll say, yeah, if this were to happen, we've got to get the sheriffs back. We need to get payroll back. We need to do this. And that means we're not even going to be able to talk to you guys at the courts until week three, week four, week 10, month one, whatever it is, so that you as a court manager can sit there and think about, well, okay, well, what do I do to keep things going without any kind of technology or what alternate technology do I have? Everyone agrees that cybersecurity costs money. Some say it costs a lot of money. How does a court convince a city council, a county board of supervisors, or even a state legislature to spend money for cybersecurity if those bodies have never experienced an attack? Kevin? I'm, I'm thinking back to a debate we had around a JTC meeting table at one time, and I remember Casey mentioning something to the effect that he really didn't care what others thought about it. You can either pay now or you can pay later, but you're going to pay. <laughs> so I, I think sometimes that trying to convince a, a court's funding unit that they need to invest can start with actual real world examples. I don't think I, you know, in my case, I didn't actually have to get attacked to go back to our courts funding unit and give them a laundry list of courts like the ones we're hearing from today that have been attacked and that it's not just the courts, it's other county departments, it's other state offices, and that this is becoming more prevalent, not less prevalent. I found a lot of resources about cybersecurity uh, through different federal government websites and elsewhere, you know, and, and there are some private reports that give information on the state of, of cybersecurity. One quote I recently found is most organizations are getting better at preventing direct cyber attacks. That may be part because, of, as Julie mentioned, more folks are talking about it in staff meetings or going through IT training. But they go on to say that the shape-shifting world of cybersecurity Attackers have already moved on to indirect targets, such as vendors and other third parties in the supply chain. 
So they're being opportunistic. They're trying to figure out where they can hit. And it, you know, if we've got vulnerabilities, somebody's going to find them eventually. So I think taking that message back to a funding unit and saying, you know, we we're going to end up paying something in the long run, one way or another. So why don't we be smart about it? Casey mentioned, I, I thought was a great idea of figuring out what you would have paid in ransom uh, and putting that money towards uh, future security issues. I, I also have told many people the story I heard from him, and I don't know if it's true or if he just dreamed it, but the one thing that helped save them in Texas is he had a closet with a pile of laptops that weren't connected to anything and they hadn't been used yet. And he was able to pull them out and start redeploying them. Well, that started me thinking, do I need to not deal with just-in-time inventory or should I have a few backups uh, that aren't connected to anything that I've got on a shelf in a closet somewhere in the courthouse? And that might really help us in the long run. And that might be a, another message to our funding units just to say, you got to help us out here. We need some money so that we've got these uh, redundancies in place that are going to allow us to keep working and moving forward. Courts are a little better prepared now just because of COVID. Also, uh, there's so many in my court included, we're a small court, but it forced me to purchase several laptops for webinars, for trainings, for the different things, because when in 2019, when I ordered all of those brand new computers and monitors with, from the Supreme Court of Ohio, and they were already on order and delivered here in the hallway of the IT department, um, none of them had cameras. None of them had speakers. I never dreamed in a million years that I would ever be on a webinar. So, so quickly I had to purchase little webcams and more laptops that sit in my drawer, but my people can use them for various reasons. So those extraneous pieces of technology that are sitting around here unplugged can also be future go-to, you know, opportunistic pieces of technology. Is there a checklist for working on cybersecurity on a shoestring budget? Kevin? Yes, Peter, I'm bringing this answer directly from the shameless marketing division of NACOM and the Joint Technology Committee. So I mentioned a little bit earlier that we just, because of some of these attacks that are happening all over the country right now, we're just in the process of finalizing version three of our cybersecurity basics for courts. It's going to be published probably within the next couple of weeks and will be on our website. And we took the experience of Texas into account when we started hearing about sort of the checklist that they're running through and built from there. But we put together um, an appendix. It's actually appendix B of this resource bulletin that's coming out and it's called Taking Action. And, and the suggested court actions are laid out in three different levels. There are basic, intermediate actions, and, and then we broke these down. Many of them have no cost at all. There are things that we, many of us, are probably already doing because of our experiences, but a lot of courts may not be. Simple things like verifying that your data is backed up frequently. You know, having some kind of a test for uh, restoration procedures, periodically attempt a full restore of your system, 
review the threat surface regularly, um, requiring strong and complex passwords that change at regular intervals. I, I don't know about the rest of you, but I can't tell you how many complaints I've gotten from staff and judges over the years. Of, why does that damn machine make me change my password? I can't remember my last three passwords and you're making me change it again. And I think part of what we have to do as court managers is our best job to begin to change that culture and say, judge, I hate to break it to you, but it's not all about you. You know, this is an issue that is going to affect the court as an institution. We're either going to be able to do a job or not do our job. And some of these things that can be done on a shoestring budget can really help move us forward in that regard. So th there's a whole checklist of things. Um, Jorge mentioned the tabletop exercises that are focused specifically on cybersecurity response plans. So that's uh, included in here. And, and most of the things that we, we published in this taking action checklist were done with the thought in mind that not everybody's got a budget for this. You know, a lot of us may not have that luxury of, of resources uh, that some large courts have or that state systems have. So we, we tried to be mindful uh, and provide a lot of different ideas from that perspective. Kevin, it sounds like tabletop exercises and testing is a good way to prepare for a cyber attack, but they often don't truly grasp the reality of a cyber crisis. How do you inject an element of reality into a tabletop exercise, which can often seem sort of perfunctory? Well, I don't know about everyone else, but I know when I've created tabletop exercises before, I've always had to get creative and think up different scenarios and lay them out. I don't have to do that anymore because all of you have provided my scenarios. It, you know, they, just looking at the examples of how many different ways our courts have been threatened or, or directly attacked, whether it's a ransomware attack or a malware or a, a phishing attack. It, you know, there are a lot of different types of, of things that can be done. And I think part of what I know we're trying to do in our jurisdiction is to begin just going through that tabletop exercise more frequently than we ever have before. We are great with fire drills. We are great with tornado drills. We know where they are. We're, we're never gonna get flooded here in the Midwest where I am, but we know what to do if there's a flood. So, you know, it's, it's those kinds of things that we're historically used to, but now we've gotta make some cultural shifts and understand that courts are being negatively impacted in new ways. And we have to begin to prepare not only ourselves and our judges, but also all of our frontline staff as to what to do and, um, and to also, you know, we, we see that um, interesting uh, adage that comes from law enforcement, see something, say something. Well, we need to, to bring that into the court world as well. And if somebody sees something in their computer system that doesn't look quite right, it's not time to think, oh, we'll just forget about that or somebody else will take care of it. We need folks to know that it's time to raise your hand or a red flag and make sure that we're being on the safe side uh, rather than dealing with the, uh, the bottom falling out 
when we get attacked and, and our systems all shut down. If I may add a quick point to that, uh, sure. that the, the tabletop exercise, obviously I've mentioned that we were not great at them, but one of the things that uh, I keep hearing is that culture. And we do have to show that these cyber attacks affect everybody. I think when we hear cyber threat or cyber attack, it still looks like an IT function, an IT role, and it's not, it's everybody. So when you start engaging judges, court administrators, clerks, anybody that interacts with the court and these systems, it's everybody's job to be part of the security team. Uh, so it, it, nobody has a, a role that's independent of this. If they're touching your systems, they're part of that team. So I think that would be part of the culture message to share is that, you, as David said in his article, David Slayton said, you don't want to make it so convenient for people that you're uh, allowing the security to be diminished. Peter, uh, one more resource that I mentioned, again, going back to the shameless marketing division for uh, JTC. In this new paper that's coming out, there, there's a footnote and a link to the Department of Homeland Security. They have an agency that most IT professionals are very familiar with. It's called the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. They have actually developed a tabletop exercise package. So it's if somebody has no idea where to begin in putting together tabletop exercises, SISA uh, has done it for us, and the direct link to all of those resources are in that resource bulletin that, that should be up on our website in the next couple of weeks. Casey? And Peter, I was going to say the, the question was asking how can you add a, an element of reality? I'll say that uh, an interesting thing would be to uh, take a judge and a coordinator and, and maybe some clerk staff and put them in a room with with three folding tables and some chairs and tell them, hold court. <laughs> well, I need my, no, you don't have, you have whatever you have on your person. I would make sure they're not taking their court laptop in with them. Yeah. But you've got your, your personal cell phone on you and three folding tables and some chairs, hold court. And then, and see what they say they need. Cause like uh, Julie mentioned, you know, well, I would need a tape recorder and a cassette tape and I can plug that into power or, I'm going to need tablets and pens. Okay, I can get you that. Well, I'm going to need case management. Nope, computer, you don't have it. Yeah. Go on to the next thing. Because I, I guarantee you, I know our tabletop experience is probably like everybody else's. The first couple of times you do a tabletop exercise, it's very scary. And everybody leaves the room thinking, holy cow, this is going to be bad. But, you know, if you do it regularly and after about the third or fourth time, you start thinking, you know, we're, we, we've got this or we can control this. So, yeah, I would say for that element of reality, bring them into a room with no computers and say, hold court and see how they can do it. Well, and as Casey, you know, was following some of my lead, but it's, it's very real. And even though it's not physically real, like if you have a natural disaster, you can see the fire, you can see the tornado remains, you can see the flood. And everybody knows how to pull together instantly to solve that problem, put the fire out, you know. But when you have an invisible intruder, such as a cyber attack, nobody knows exactly what they're looking at or how to react. And so the more guidance and more preparation you can put in place is essential. So everything that we've all described here today is that invisible invader that we we now know about and how are we going to react the next time it knocks on our door. Was managing a cyber attack part of your coop? Montrella? 
The uh, Supreme Court of Ohio had prepared us court managers and, you know, we had all had training and I, you know, I will say some of the um, functions in the existing group that we had were transferable to, um, you know, we had experienced the uh, having to recover uh, data before. So we had that outline, but in no way did any of the scenarios that we had prepare us for the fact that you know, the jump drives that were our backups that even if we couldn't get into the building, we felt comfortable we had them in our purse or, you know, somewhere that we would not be able to access those because it took us a while to pinpoint exactly how long the virus had been in the system. And so we weren't sure that our jump drives were, you know, clean. And so those had to be, to be scanned as well. So I would say um, no, in um, any form of the scenarios that we had, um, we had not been um, prepared for that aspect. And then also um, um, now with our COOP, as well as our court security plan that we're required to have, we do have that as a component, component of those plans. Jorge? Yeah, so to have a line item and some planning document that, you know, how we would respond to a cyber attack, I, I would say yes, we, we did have that. But uh, to Montrella's point, the, to the scope and the impact and, and all the nuances are, were just not anticipated. Uh, we did not do tabletop exercises to even get us remotely prepared for that. The continuity of planning uh, documents were all of our own natural disasters. And if we had to, you know, physically move some items, uh, and this was, this was a new threat. Even if you're aware of it, um, it, it definitely is not something that you can plan for adequately. Uh, I love the saying with Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And we got punched. Uh, one of the big things was just how you coordinate all the resources, how you uh, start addressing the, the nuances that you just were not prepared for. A uh, great example on the jump drives. Uh, a lot of our machines, we had uh, machines that were not being used, but at the same time, we were concerned about how do we get these back on the network? What can we access? The unknowns were really difficult. If we had a more planning, a, a checklist type of approach on how to move through this process, it would have helped a lot. So I think everybody is, is definitely getting more prepared now, more so than we were in the past. Casey? So for us, we had a separate cybersecurity incident response plan that was separate from the coup. Um, and to echo some of the things that Jorge was saying, um, you know, our coop is was geared more towards disaster scenarios to where not only were, would our organization be dealing with a disaster, but all these other organizations would also be dealing with the same disaster. So it's kind of, you know, birds of a feather, you know, a pandemic comes. Yeah, we've got to deal with it, but so does everybody else. And so we're all just kind of understanding that, yeah, you know, pandemic hit and, and we'll work together. Uh, but in this scenario, I it was we are the only ones suffering and everybody else is fine. So it's just completely localized, completely, um, you know, encapsulated to the courts. And I think the other thing is, is without any kind of a visual. So like you could go to the courthouse and see the courthouse is still there. And so it wasn't burnt down or exploded or anything like that. So it's just a, a very different uh, piece of pressure with our incident response plan, we had done tabletop exercises, but I don't think we contemplated, um, for our case, it was a, a destruction mission. So I don't think we uh, contemplated 
the level and amount of destruction down to nothing uh, that you would have to rebuild from in any of our plants. Uh, that's all to say that today that um, definitely we, we've since changed our coop to add that line of when we do the exercise of which disasters are most likely and most impactful. Uh, you, can, you can bet that cyber attack and complete uh, destruction is now in that list of things that we need to consider when we're doing our, our coup. Julie? Well, yeah, as Montrella mentioned, the state of Ohio requires that the, all courts submit a security plan and a coup plan. Obviously, cybersecurity uh, or a cyber attack was not incorporated into our coup plan until now. Um, we were also natural disaster bound um, in that. So it was kind of a by the seat of your pants, learn as you go thing. Um, we had some guidance from some other courts that I had found out had previously been affected. So we kind of got to tap into their little expertise, but otherwise it was wing it as you went. So now we can translate that down to paper and, uh, you know, reduce it to a, the, the new coup plan that will be hopefully never referenced in the future. I want to thank Kevin Bowling, Montrella Jackson, Jorge Basto, Julie Heidi, and Casey Kennedy for giving us their guidance on protecting your court against an attack. Cyber threats are real, and we need to guard against them now. As always, my thanks to you, court professionals, tuning in to today's episode. You are the crucial component in guarding against cyber threats. It is your skill and persistence that keeps courts safe. Thank you. Join us on October 19th for another episode dealing with the issues facing our courts. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you would like to listen to again, but you don't want to search through the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section of the webpage contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it is the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time in the episode and listen to the panelists' comments. Remember, if you don't have time to watch an episode, you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car or on the bus on your way to or from work. You never have to miss an episode. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thank you, and have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management. 